Find more great podcasts at boingboing.net and learn more about my new book, You Are Now Less Dumb, the sequel to You Are Not So Smart at youarenotsosmart.com. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, Episode 9. Going for an argument. I've told you once. No, you haven't. Yes, I have. When? Just now. No, you didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. I didn't. didn't. I'm telling you, I did. You did not. I'm sorry, is this a five minute argument or the full half hour? Oh! Oh, This is the classic argument clinic sketch from Monty Python. Uh, Thank you. Anyway, I did. You most certainly did not. Now, let's get one thing quite clear. <laughs> I most definitely told you. You did not. Yes, I did. You did not. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. Didn't. Yes, I did. No, this is an argument. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. It's just contradiction. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It is not. It is. <laughs> you just contradicted me. No, I didn't. Oh, you did. No, 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 no. You did, just no, then. No, no, nonsense. Oh, look, this is futile. No, it isn't. I came here for a good argument. No, you didn't. You came here for an argument. Well, an argument's not the same as contradiction. Can be. No, it can't. An argument is a collective series of statements to establish a definite proposition. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. It isn't just contradiction. Look, if I argue with you, I must take up a contrary position. But it isn't just saying, no, it isn't. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. <laughs> Arguments are an intellectual process. Contradiction is just the automatic gainsaying of anything the other person says. No, it isn't. Yes, it is. Not at all. No, look. I... Thank you. <laughs> like all Monty Python sketches, you know, it's it's beautiful, it's intellectual, and it's absurd in a way that reveals a truth about human nature. And it pops into my head whenever I see real sort of arguments like this. We did it. All right, that's well, but you still went out in July and said everything was great, and off that, a lot of people bought stock and lost everything they had. Oh, no. and yes. I, oh, yes. No, oh, yes. I said it wasn't yes. good investment. Please Don't give me any me. of that. We just heard the words. What are you? Let's what talk. are you? That, you didn't Let's say that? You want me to play it again? So, yeah, is this an yeah, argument? In other words, no. is yeah, this, as Monty Python was saying, is this a connected series of statements intended to establish a proposition? Is this an intellectual process? Or are these just two people gainsaying all the statements that the other person makes? Is this just a, yes it is, no it isn't sort of situation? Under your tutelage, this industry declined 90%. 90%. Oh, none of this was your fault. I think it's it's fair to say that, okay, if we can agree with Monty Python that there are really sort of two things that we call arguments, one being one person contradicting the other over and over again, and the other thing, uh, two people presenting their ideas, their perspectives, their uh, individual um, concepts of the truth and what ought to be, and then allowing those ideas to sort of circle each other until a higher truth emerges, then Bill O'Reilly is rarely uh, doing the latter. 
And that's true of, of punditry in general. I mean, when you watch punditry on TV, you're watching it because you're you're being entertained by the battle, but you're not really allowing a greater truth to emerge, at least not most of the time. And I think that we've become pretty familiar with that sort of engagement because that's what a lot of us do online all the time. When it's on Facebook or on Twitter or on um, Reddit or it's on uh, the, the uh, comments on our YouTube, people are arguing a whole lot on the internet. So why do we argue? Why do human beings argue? It's such a simple question, but like asking what is a mountain or why do people like bacon so much, the answer is so complex, so connected to every other aspect of the natural world, at least the the world created by consciousness, that a metropolis of ideas and concepts springs up around the mining operation scientists construct to investigate it. And that is what we are going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore a different aspect of self-delusion. And afterward, I eat a cookie and give you some self-delusion news. This episode, we're going to talk about arguing. Why do we do it? And what does science have to say about the phenomenon? And arguing is something that we have thought about for a very long time. If you read the Greeks and you take classes in logic and you just simply get a formal college education, you're going to hear a lot about the old arguments. You're going to hear a lot about ancient people arguing with one another. And you're going to hear a lot about uh, famous intellectuals who would pass uh, letters back and forth or would make public statements about one another. And they would sort of have these ongoing uh, intellectual feuds. And books would be written that were to address what another book had to say. And so argumentation has been sort of a formal way that people communicate for a very long time, not just bickering, but argumentation. It's sort of a fundamental part of being a human being. It appears wherever there is a conversation, when ideas move from one mind to another, conflict, it waxes and wanes within that exchange. And what's changed recently is that now we have this thing called the internet. On the internet, you have not just the article, but the comment section. You have not just the video, but the comments below. You have not just the uh, the content, but you have the forum where that content is shared and people talk about it back and forth. You don't just have the interesting thing that popped into your feed. You have the social media landscape in which you share it. And then your friends and your family come along and say, well, here's what I think. Here's what I think. For many people, this is like the first time that they've been confronted that what they personally believe is maybe not true uh, or maybe just kind of misinformed. As we go forward, we will get used to this sort of interaction, but in this transitional period between old media and the current media that used to be called new media, we are still sort of getting used to the fact that we can't just say or share things without there maybe being some sort of rebuttal. So almost nothing on the internet can be um, distributed without there being a conversation that takes place. So the internet is not just sort of like content and then another piece of content feuds with that content. There's an ongoing conversation that's always taking place. And if there is an ongoing conversation, there will be arguments and there are plenty of those. Jeremy Sherman has written about this extensively. He is an evolutionary epistemologist, a person who studies the way human beings have over time learned how to get at the truth. And a large part of his research is into the way that people argue. 
So, Jeremy, uh, you are an expert on argumentation and sort of how people compete rhetorically. So why, why would you say it seems so difficult for um, when you're in the middle of one of these uh, arguments to realize that you're not proceeding from an objective viewpoint? Like why, why, do we, why is it so difficult to realize that you are underwater subjectively, and, but you don't see that? What, what, what's going on there? Well, uh, I know from personal experience, as, as most people, I think, would know from personal experience, that it's fun to think you got it down, fun to think you figured it out. It's much more satisfying than thinking you don't. I've uh, just finished a book called Doubt, A Natural History, A User's Guide. Um, uh, heck, I can take a tax write-off for doubting. Um, it's my life's work. I'm really interested in doubt. Um, I hate it, though. I don't like to be in a state of doubt. So any way that I can um, find uh, tools by which I can declare myself infallible, I will gravitate toward them. I actually think the fundamental use we get out of any doctrine, any popular, spiritual, political, whatever doctrine, is a high-minded way of saying, shut up, I'm right. That's what, that's the, that's the, you know, in the old days when you used to go in and uh, open a new account at a bank, they'd give you a toaster on the first day. Uh, you know, that was, you're going to be a premium. I think that's the toaster of spirituality and ideology and philosophy in general. That's what we really gravitate towards is we would like a way to stop doubt. What I love about the way Jeremy writes concerning argumentation is that he points out certain things that you see every single time people get into one of these long drawn out arguments on the internet. Uh, you'll see people do what he calls, um, gravitation toward postures of objectivity. In other words, when people are arguing a point, they, it's at some place in the argument, they stop saying, I believe so-and-so, or I think so-and-so, and they say, so-and-so simply is true that uh, they aren't being subjective, they aren't being biased, they're simply telling you facts about the world. And to prove it, what both parties will end up doing is digging into the internet, going to Google, going to Wikipedia, going places where they can find evidence that supports their conclusion, and then they can sort of, uh, from the way he writes about it, is they can become the judge instead of the lawyer for the for the uh, arguing for their side, they go up into what he calls a sort of omnipotent viewpoint that is neutral and it's not um, biased, even though it's obviously so because they're using a bias to find that information and deliver it. But people don't see that about themselves, and he calls those things infallibility contests, a dead end debate in which both people are trying to prove to the other person that they are the most infallible, that they are the most objective. And um, yeah, you're going to see that a whole lot. And he has a recommendation as to what you should do if that starts to happen. So suppose I'm arguing with someone and I stop and I say, wait, before we continue to discuss what's true and what's not, I just want to make sure I understand your position. And then I play their lawyer. Nothing snarky about it. I simply try to make their case as effectively as possible. Um, really just get in their shoes and make their, advocate, uh, make their case. Really separate 
my understanding of it from my agreement with it. So if I need to, I can caveat it by saying, you know, this is, uh, uh, regardless of what I think of this, I want to understand I, what you're saying to make sure that I hear it. So you say what they're saying as convincingly as possible, and you ask them, did I get it? And then you're quiet, and you listen to whether you got it. Okay, um, okay. let me... Go ahead, please. I want to I, I want to unpack that, because that sounds really neat. I'm going to... I'm going to pretend to be on one side of an argument, and then you do that to me, okay? Okay, sounds good. Uh, okay. Uh, uh, so um, evolution cannot possibly be true. I mean, we can tell from uh, – there are many texts out there that you can combine. And, you know, the, the Earth is probably around about 6,000 years old. So um, I just don't see where, you know, this – the talking about the Big Bang. I mean, how do we even start talking about that stuff? I mean, we obviously the Earth is six thousand years old. We have evidence for it. Okay, so let's assume first of all, for the context here, that this has already gotten heated. You've already heard my opinion, and we've been squaring off on it. Right. Um, okay. Good. So, um, David, be before we continue to discuss whether or not uh, evolutionary theory has any merit, I just want to make sure that I understand what you're saying. So you're saying that um, all of the evidence points toward the Earth being 6,000 years old. And really, there isn't support for evolutionary theory. It's highly debated. It's just a theory. It's, um, it's really not got any merit, especially given that we know that the Earth is 6,000 uh, 6, years old. Am I hearing you correctly? Okay. I like that. That's a really interesting technique. I've never heard it done that way before. Um, because I would assume that the other party would then immediately, they would, you would be pushing them into realms like, um, well, I understand that there's a lot of evidence out there, but you know, scientists have their own agendas and they're trying to get money from um, from grants, and and you're gonna, you're, you're basically shifting the person onto the onto their heels where they're having to explain themselves uh, instead of allowing them to be on the attack? Is, it, is, it, is that kind of how it, how it works? Well, it, it, it has a variety of potential outcomes, including that people think you're trying to manipulate them. It's right. certainly not surefire. <laughs> Often what you'll get, remember that we're, we would have gotten to that point by already having squared off. And so the person will often say, you know, you can be right in the middle of an infallibility contest and try to de-escalate it that way. And the person, uh, you could say back to me, Jeremy, you didn't get it. You didn't understand me. You know, you don't, you don't hear me. And I would then say, okay, well, um, uh, let's try again because I do want to understand you. Um, and you might say, well, no, you don't really try to understand me. Say, I understand I, that, 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 that that would be a question for you. But I would really appreciate it if you would say it again or what I'm missing, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And keep it from being a conflict. Uh, it, I, there can't be anything snarky in my mirroring response to you. I can't say, well, you're thinking that uh, the Bible is right about everything. Or so, you know, I, just, I can't mock you. I can't deride you. I can't do anything to trivialize your argument or else it's going to undermine its ability to potentially de-escalate the conversation. But even at its best, you might be so... Um, so stuck in the infallibility contest for all I know, because of something I said before, you know, I can, uh, maybe, maybe I said something about how the Bible's not even wrong and you're, you know, taking umbrage of that. I don't, I don't even know where our disagreement started. What got us into the infallibility contest could be any little hair trigger. But what I would try to do is go a few rounds with you. 
how many rounds? I would say always one more than you think. <laughs> <laughs> um, but at some point, you stop because it's not working. The other person can still just keep it going as an infallibility contest. Um, mirroring is not an infallible technique. One thing you get, though, for it is what I'll call the consolation of thoroughness. Um, I have a basic rule, which is if you don't want to be a jerk, expect some anxiety. That is, I have to live with some doubt about whether I have given an argument its fair opportunity. And the longer I can bear with an argument I find disagreeable, um, the more... Uh, the more confidence I will have when it's time to walk. It's part of what it takes to do full efficiency without simply walking, without just becoming a smug bastard who uh, won't suffer fools. And it doesn't stop with infallibility contests. When people argue, a whole range of phenomena will appear, reliably so, like confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and subjective validation and the backfire effect. And if all this sort of stuff interests you, how people argue, rhetoric, debate, and all that stuff, well, you're in luck because there's a couple thousand years worth of discussion on the topic across many cultures, going back to people like Plato, and running right up to modern books by Glenn Beck and Rachel Maddow. But what is new, what is really, really interesting is that research into the psychology and neuroscience of arguing is only now really making progress toward understanding why we do this. Why do we argue? Why do we fall prey to confirmation bias? Why do we use motivated reasoning to maintain erroneous beliefs? So the answer to these questions also has something to do with the answer to a really fundamental question. Why do we even have the ability to reason? And that is what we are going to talk about today with our guest, Hugo Mercier, who has put together this paper, this, this incredible bit of research called Why Do Humans Reason? Arguments for an Argumentative Theory. And I'll have a, a link to that on the website. And what he's done is with his um, research partner, Dan Sperber, is put together a, a model for explaining why are we so biased? Why do we fall prey to logical fallacies? What's going on whenever we have um, disagreements that involve motivated reasoning? What I write about, what um, many books that, are, that have come out in the last few years are talking about uh, when it comes to the fallibility of human reasoning he puts it into a new perspective that I think you're going to find fascinating and incredible. He is a postdoc in philosophy, politics, and economics, and he's currently doing research in Switzerland. He is a really interesting person who has a lot to say, and I think you're going to love this. Hugo, uh, I'm so happy to have you on the show. Um, your model, the argumentative theory, is so fascinating, and it suggests something really interesting, and that is that arguing isn't really a bad thing at all. And could you explain from the perspective of your theory, what is the purpose of arguing? <clears throat> well, thank you very much, um, David, for, uh, uh, for this interview and, and for, uh, for the kind words regarding our, 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 um, our theory. Um, so... Arguing, I mean, for us, the purpose of arguing uh, is to um, to overcome what what Dan Sperber, my my co-author, <clears throat> sorry, my co-author calls um, trust bottlenecks. So sometimes, 
um, someone, you know, someone, you know, will tell you something and you won't take them on trust. You won't just, you know, take their word for it. And in these kind of cases, it becomes very useful to have argumentation to be able to convince people uh, rather than just, you know, give up or, uh, you know, try to try to use, you know, your power or something else to um, um, to get them to uh, to change their mind. So we can see, I think, how um, evolution, I mean, throughout our evolution, um, this sort of mechanism would have been would have been useful. I mean, if even if you think of, uh, of, of a very um, kind of you know, everyday life situation, if you're um, if you're discussing with your partner, and you're having a minor disagreement over you know what kind of movie to see and whatnot, um, if you know if we were unable to exchange reasons for you know why it's better to see such and such movie or why it's better to you know to make a right rather than a left, we would we would you know we would we wouldn't be unable to um, to make any kind of you know smart um, collective decision. So so I think that's why argumentation is so crucial, and and just it might be useful to to make a little. Um, kind of semantic clarification. So in English, it's a problem we don't really have in French, which is, you know, sort of my native language. But in English, um, arguing sort of has two meanings. One is kind of nasty, which is, you know, really uh, when you're, you know, having a fight with your spouse or something like that. And it's just, you know, a shouting match. And the other is just, you know, exchanging arguments. And, and that is only this second meaning we have in mind. So we're not saying that people should, uh, you know, obviously shout at each other. Um, just that they should, you know, exchange reasons for for their points of view. So it's sort of a, if I'm understanding correctly, it's sort of a, it's a communicate. It evolved to be a communication facilitator, sort of a filter, exactly a filter between the sender and the receiver of of new information. Yeah. So um, when it comes to, and, and I think we all have experienced, especially uh, with the new, with the internet and with social media and with um, tools like Twitter that people tend to get into a lot of um, people tend to get into a lot of arguments online, but both so- both versions, as you were saying, the nasty and the one where you're trying to to mm-hmm. get people to see your point of view. Um, what what do you, what keeps people from just arguing constantly and never moving forward past their um, points of view? Well, you know, obviously, it kind of depends on the context. And uh, if we if we just look at internet comments, it might it might make one despair about um, you know people's ability to look beyond their point of view. Um, although, I mean, even on the internet, it depends. I mean, some forums have fairly you know, you know well educated, well spoken, and and you, you know just you know reasonable people who are willing to change their mind. I mean, it's not not everything is you know YouTube comments, <laughs> but uh, but. Um, so, I mean, at least if we're if we're right, and I think so the um, the, the um, experimental results support our, our theory, um, people have to be able to change their mind for um, for argumentation to make sense in the first place. So, if people were just you know exchanging arguments um, and they would never change their mind, you know, when when confronted with good arguments, then people would just stop doing it. I mean, there would be there would be no point in uh, in putting arguments forward if there was no chance at all that they would ever be effective. Mm-hmm. So the very fact in a way that we're, you know, putting forward arguments means that somehow we hope that they can they can succeed. And I think if they really never succeeded, you know, people would stop and at least, you know, clearly evolutionarily, um it wouldn't be stable that people would just, you know, say it's like, you know, imagine everybody if everybody was deaf, you know, people would stop talking. Mm. And uh, it's the same thing with arguments. Um I think it's also it's also um very um tempting when we when we think of arguments uh, perhaps because of this of this uh, kind of double meaning it has in english 
to think of of um, kind of the worst type of arguments when you know where you're you're talking politics with uh, someone from the other side and no one really budges or anything. Whereas in fact most of the of the arguments in the kind of more um, um, generic meaning, more most of the reasons reasons we exchange in in, uh, in everyday life are about much more um, trivial matters, such as you know who who should you know who should be cooking tonight and you know what movie we should watch and. Mm. And, and that sort of things. And, and in these kind of cases, arguments do work fairly well. Now, what's, uh, what's great about your research and your, and your work is that it sort of reimagines the very idea of reason, uh, reasoning and, and rationality. And um, in your work, you say that reasoning doesn't necessarily lead to more accurate or better estimates of correctness or even superior moral judgments. So if that's true, what is, from your perspective, the purpose of reasoning? That's a very good point. So uh, the, the, what we're saying is that reasoning doesn't do that for the individual reasoner. So that when, when people are trying to, um, to reason on their own, um, usually, or at least in many cases, it's going to have um, either no consequence because people will just find reasons for whatever they were thinking and they'll, they'll just, you know, stop there and, and not, uh, not do anything more. Or in some cases it can even lead to bad consequences. So, so there's this thing that psychologists, um, call the confirmation bias and that, you know, you've, you've, you've talked about a lot, mm-hmm. um, in your, in your previous writings. And this thing is basically that people, when they reason, they tend to mostly find arguments for, uh, whatever, you know, belief or decision they already have. And so when, when you're reasoning on your own, you, you don't have any, um, any sanding board. You don't have anyone, anyone to tell you that, you know, there are other points of view to consider or that your arguments might not be so strong or that there might be counter arguments. And as a result, you're likely to become more polarized and even more sure, even, you know, more confident than that, that you're right. So, so that's why I think, um, people often when they when they reason on their own, don't, um, don't really improve their beliefs or, you know, their decisions or make more moral decisions. On the other hand, um, reasoning should lead to these consequences when people reason with each other, when they, when they exchange arguments, when they uh, argue in the, in the nice, nice meaning. Um, and I think then again, that a lot of, of experimental and you know, historical um, evidence supports this, this contention and that when two people, you know, are arguing about the mathematical problem or logical problem or, the factual problem are many different types of issues, and the one who is right is actually more likely to convince the other one um, than the other way around. So that in the end, both have—I mean, at least one of them have better belief, has uh, better beliefs than, than you know what um, she started with. And in many cases, both of them will end up with better beliefs because you know they'll be able to tell. Well, you know, you were right on that point, and I was right on that point, and we'll just you know we're just going to combine these these um, beliefs and, and make a better one together. And, and how does your view differ from the conventional view of reasoning, would you say? So the main difference um, is that for the conventional view, basically the lone reasoner should be doing all of that. So the, the classic view of reasoning is that um, you should be, people you know, should, should be reasoning on their own before making a decision or you know, to make sure that they're right. And even though it's, it's, you know, it's all well and good as, um, as, uh, as a recommendation, um, it just so happens that people are not really fully um, equipped to do that in many cases, and 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 really, indeed, it, it really goes against the grain to uh, 
to um, to really cautiously you know, examine uh, our own beliefs and, and make sure that we have good reasons rather than just find more arguments for what we already believe. So, um, so the main difference is not that, you know, we're saying, you know, I mean, like the classical view is, you know, reasoning leads to better beliefs and we're saying reasoning does not lead to better beliefs. Uh, the classical view is reasoning le leads to better beliefs and better decisions when people reason on their own. And what we're saying is that these positive outcomes are much more likely to be um, to be reached if people reason together. See, I love the way you approach this because often uh, the very first thing I try to get across and say like a lecture is that people tend to put reason and rationality and logic uh, over on one side and they put um, rationalization and bias and everything on the other side and they see it as sort of a... It's uh, one thing versus the other toward trying to get to better decisions. Because, you know, it's, you, you assume like um, the scientific, reasonable, uh, measured response to information coming into our brain is um, to use reason to overcome all of our shortcomings, right? Mm -hmm. And um, from your perspective, reasoning isn't necessarily all about that. It, it, it is a... Um, it is flawed, but it's more about. Uh, in fact, uh, the new when the New York Times wrote about you, they they sort of sen somewhat sensationally said that you know, reasoning has evolved to win arguments. Is um, could you unpack? Could you unpack that idea? Is that yeah? No, yeah, no. I'd, I'd be happy to. So it is. I mean, that is basically that is one half of what we're arguing for. So our our contention is that reasoning evolved to argue and you know to exchange arguments, which means two things. One of them is to produce arguments. Uh, you know, um, if I if I want to argue with with someone, I must be able to um, to produce arguments to defend my point of view. But the other, uh, as I was pointing out earlier, is is to evaluate other people's arguments. So if you're either um, unable to reject weak arguments, then you're going to be convinced by you know the slightest uh, pretext and the slightest you know excuse for a reason, and that's going to be bad. On the other hand, if you are never convinced, um, then that's bad as well, because sometimes, you know, sometimes you're wrong and, and you want to be convinced by, by people who have uh, better opinions and better beliefs. So um, if we're right, reasoning really evolved for, for these two things, which are basically one, you know, one activity, which is argumentation, which entails both producing and evaluating arguments. And the thing that happened in in the popular press, including in that uh, in that New York Times article, was that people emphasized the more kind of sensationalistic um, aspect, which is that reasoning just evolved to win arguments, which is just half of what we're saying. Where, you know, if you want to win an argument, you know, the other person has to has to change their mind. It's not possible. You know, if if uh, you can't win, if if no one, I mean, not everybody can win an argument. There has to be a side that that sort of loses, uh, you know, kind of square quotes, square quotes around that. Mm -hmm. Because in many cases, losing an argument means, you know, having a better belief. You know, you, if the other person was right and you were wrong, then, you know, you're better off losing the argument. So, so it's really these two things that, that cannot, uh, that don't make sense, you know, one without the other. If you, if you, you can't just be evaluating arguments if no one is producing them. And as I was saying earlier, if you're just producing arguments and no one is evaluating them, um, that doesn't make you know, really any sense either. You also say in your research or in, in your paper, in your work, that reasoning doesn't necessarily push people toward the, the best decisions either. Um, but instead, reasoning often um, pushes people toward decisions that are easier to justify. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? So, 
I'm going to um, to give you an example. So, I mean, the the, the general idea is that um, in many cases in in the modern world, we're facing decisions for which we have little intuitions. We don't really know what to do. We don't have any strong opinion to start with. And so, when that happens, reasoning is not going to have um, a strong confirmation bias because basically we don't have any any pre-established belief or, or decision to to confirm in the first place. And so, it it could be tempted to think and you know, many people have uh, suggested that, that in these cases, then reasoning should do a good job at telling, well, you know, objectively, no, now I don't have any, any, any strong preference. So reasoning should, should um, allow me to, to really get at the heart of things and, and weigh things carefully and get at better decisions. And what seems to happen instead is that people go for the most um, easily justifiable decision, which is not always the best. So, um, so I'm going to give you an example it's a, it's a very nice study that uh, that was done by um, Chris C and and, uh, and his colleagues, I think. And so the idea is, um, participants um, so participants in a psychology experiment they they um, they do an experiment, and after that they are given the choice between two chocolates um, to be to be taken as a gift, and one chocolate is small and cheap and in in the cha- in the shape of a lovely heart. And the other chocolate is big and expensive, well, at least a you know, big, bigger and, and more expensive, uh, but it is in the shape of a disgusting looking um, cockroach. And so if you ask people, which one will you enjoy the most? Most people say, I'm going to enjoy the, the hard shaped chocolate the most because, you know, you don't really want to eat uh, anything that, you know, that looks like a roach. Mm-hmm. However, when you ask people, you know, which one will you pick? Uh, most people actually pick the, 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 the roach shaped chocolate. And it seems that they're doing that because they can't really manage to justify picking the other one. They kind of, you know, there's this thing, well, obviously it's rational to pick the most expensive, you know, the biggest uh, thing. And the fact that it's a roach is not, you know, it shouldn't really have any impact because it's, you know, it's not an actual roach. It's just, you know, looking like a roach. And so people end up making a decision that it's probably a poor decision given given what we know of the, of the psychology of disgust. They are not going to enjoy that chocolate uh, because they can't really justify doing anything else. Mm-hmm. And so you bring this up several times, and this is one of the greatest things about um, if you're interested in this sort of thing. If you've, if you're, because there is a, a deep interest in this right now in um, popular thought for, for the many books about irrationality. There are, you know, I'm writing about it. Lots of people are writing about it. Um, and you look at a, several of these studies that are, have sort of risen to become famous examples, and you sort of reframe what is happening in there and give it a better explanation or a different explanation. One of my favorites is in your paper is uh, you talk about the disjunction effect, mm-hmm. which is um, involves that weird coin flip experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, you flip a coin, and uh, the subject either they're, they're told that if it comes up in their favor, they'll win $200. And if it doesn't come up in their favor, they'll lose a hundred dollars. And then, um, you give the person a single coin flip and you ask them whether they win or lose, would you like to play again? Um, and the, mm-hmm. the interesting thing is when people win, they tend to say, yeah, I'd like to play again to try to win back, uh, to get, cause they feel like they've, uh, they have less to lose cause they just won some money. And, yeah. um, even if they lose, they'll also say, yeah, I would like to play again. So it's an interesting uh, scenario because win or lose, people tend to go for a second round. Mm-mm. But you point out that if you don't let people know the outcome of the original flip, most people choose not to flip again, even though uh, 
it's something they would have done if they had known the outcome either way. And you sort of explain that from your perspective is that, um, well, they didn't have a chance to reason it out. Well, so it's, it's, um, it's, so basically in our interpretation of that experiment is, is basically in line with what was suggested originally by, uh, by, I think it was, um, it was probably actually Kahneman or, or Dversky, um, who, who first put it forward and, and, uh, Edward Schaffier. And the idea is that, the the reasons for um, for flipping flipping the coin another time um, when you've when you've won the first time or when you've lost the first time are different. So when you've won, you think, well, you know, maybe I'm, I'm on a streak and I've just I've just made two hundred dollars and you know I can re- easily spare you know one hundred dollars, so I don't care. I'm gonna flip again. On the other hand, if you lose, what you're gonna tell yourself is, well, maybe I'm gonna do it again because you know the odds are good, and I'm I'm probably gonna uh, make up for that for that first loss so that I you know I uh, I end up uh, ahead or at least not losing any money. And the problem is that when people don't know which which outcome is going to happen, um, they they don't have a good reason to keep playing because these two reasons, although they're independently good, they go in kind of different directions. They're different. They're not really you know compatible with each other, and so. Because they don't, they don't feel as if they have a good reason to 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 justify playing um, a second time. People say, you know, well, I'm I'm, I'm just not going to do it. Um, but there is maybe it's slightly more, um, um, you know, more speaking for people. I'm not sure you can say that in English. Anyway, um, it's more maybe more um, easier for people to represent that as this other example that we cite in the paper, which is a, a lovely uh, a lovely experiment, probably from the same the same source. Mm-hmm. So you're um, you're given uh, the opportunity to buy the kind of the hypothetical opportunity to buy a very very heavily discounted um, holiday trip to Hawaii, mm-hmm. and the trip would take place after um, after an exam you have you're going to pass, you're going to um, to take, and in one condition people are told uh, look so you you know you've uh, you've passed the exam uh, do you want to buy the the great trip to Hawaii and people are like sure I'll buy the trip to Hawaii I I need. You know, I deserve a reward for you know for all this hard work. Mm-hmm. Then some people are told, you know, you're not you, you actually you did not pass the exam. Do you want to buy the trip? And people are like, sure, I'll buy the trip. You know, I need a break. I need to change my mind after this after this failure. And then some other people, you know, like in the coin toss experiment, are told, uh, you don't know whether you've passed the exam or not. And these people did they don't they don't buy the trip because because the reasons for buying the trip if you pass the exam and the reasons for buying the trip if you don't pass the exam are sort of op- opposite. And and they can't they can't they don't have a good reason they don't have a single good reason anymore to um, to buy the trip and people they don't sort of go the extra step of thinking well you know I've got good reasons one way and the other way therefore actually I do have a good reason overall they just they just um, they don't go all that way mm-hmm. it's it's fascinating because the if um, a lot of these experiments illustrate that if a person is given the opportunity to um, rationalize their choice or reason it out, or if they come up with a story to explain themselves to themselves, then it drastically alters their behavior. But if they're not given the opportunity to do that, then it, their behavior will go in another direction, which lends a lot of credit to um, what you're suggesting, um, especially with uh, in the sunk cost fallacy. You write about mm-hmm. how um, traditionally when people write about the sunk cost fallacy, they write about how people just make a really poor decision um, because they're trying to um, to justify how much they've invested in a project, and so they just keep investing it in it past the point whenever it would be uh, wise to abandon it. 
but you write about how that um, people, when they're engaging in that behavior, if they're given the opportunity to justify waste, then they actually will tend to not be so trapped by the actual sunk cost fallacy. Um, so, and from your perspective, what's going on there? What is what is what is the difference between falling for the sunk cost fallacy and not falling for it because of reasoning? Well, so the the idea in the sunk cost is that people find it hard to justify um, something that they see as wasteful. So, when they have a choice between, you know, as you, as you are describing, keep you know to keep investing in something even though um, they are never going to really make any money out of it, and it's gonna it's gonna cost some money. And uh, you're just aborting a project that they've already heavily invested in. Most people will uh, will choose to keep um, investing in that in that project. And what's interesting is that, for instance, children who feel um, less pressure to justify everything they do, um, they tend to be much less susceptible to that to that fallacy. So that they just you know they do whatever you know kind of is right at the moment, rather than having this pressure to feel okay, gosh, you know, I've got I've got uh, all that money that is spent already. I can't justify, you know, just dropping everything now. Uh, on the other hand, as you were saying, if you give people a valid justification for uh, for dropping everything, uh, then they'll they'll do it. So on some level, they realize that the rational, you know, what the most rational thing to do is. But uh, but as long as they they don't feel they can justify it properly, um, then they don't do it. Um, but what's interesting as well in this case is that. For uh, let's say business school students or you know um, students of economics who have been taught about the the sunk cost fallacy, mm-hmm. um, then if you ask these people to reason more about it, then they are more likely to get it right, because they are more likely to to remember what they've been taught in class, and then they have a good reason to to not do the fallacy because they've been taught well look you know you shouldn't be doing that this is the sunk cost fallacy this is a bad a bad a bad thing, and so in this case. Basically, if you haven't been taught, you know, kind of economics 101, um, the, re- the, the the most available, the most easily available justifications in that case point to the wrong decision. However, if you've been taught a bit of economics or if you've you know, read about that fallacy, then the most available justifications point in the right direction. So what, what's interesting about that is that it shows how it's not so much whether you're a good reasoner or not that is going to, to matter but you know, you know what the rules are uh, that you've learned, and and you know what other people in your environment, in your in your uh, you know people who matter to you are going to think are good reasons, mm-hmm. and and that's you know, I mean I think that's one of the one of the important messages of our theory is that really to reason well, it's much more important to be in the right context rather than to to be a good reasoner intrinsically. I mean, we're not saying that there are you know no um, um, inter interpersonal differences in, in, in reasoning skills at all. I mean, you know, I'm sure there are. But um, if you take even some like an extremely smart, you know, uh, kind of genius type Newton person, and if you put them on their own uh, reasoning about something, in many cases, it's not going to work so well. Whereas the same person or even a, a person of you know, lesser ability, if you put them in a group and you let them uh, discuss and argue with people who disagree with them, um, they're going to do just fine. Right, that that really um, that really sort of blew my mind. Thinking about um, you, you bring up a lot of times in the um, paper that um, truth wins. I think you say over mm-hmm. and over again, um, and that people in 
some of the more famous experiments, like the waste and selection task and um, the waste and matching task, those things that often are taught in psychology classes, um, when an individual is, is doing those tests, they, they often fail a lot. But when people are put into groups, it changes the dynamic so much that people don't fail as often. What is the difference between arguing amongst, uh, in your own mind and arguing with others in a group, and how does it improve uh, the outcome? So, I mean, basically, the argumentation is just playing its role so that it's, le- it's letting people who have the right answer um, convince others. That's that's most of, what, of what's happening. So I'll give you an example. So um, we don't have any published data on that, but I've got some data, so I kind of know it works well and it makes sense given the uh, given what we know of other uh, other experiments. But this is much easier to to explain than the with the installation task. So um, psychologists now use um, a lot of problem that is known as the bat and ball, uh, which is a small kind of mathematical um, trick. Mm-hmm. So you've got a bat and a ball, and uh, the two of them together cost one dollar and ten cents. And you also know that the bat costs one dollar more than the ball. And the question is, how much does the ball cost? Mm-hmm. And most people answer that the correct answer is 10 cents. And in fact, the correct answer um, is uh, not 10 cents. Otherwise, that kind of wouldn't be fun for psychologists. <laughs> um, so 10 cents doesn't work because if the bat um, costs one dollar more than the ball, then the bat has to cost one dollar and 10 cents. And then the two of them together cost one dollar and twenty cents, and not one dollar and ten cents as um, as they should. And the correct answer is five cents. And then you have one dollar and five cents, and it all uh, it all fits. So if you give that that problem to um, to to individuals to solve on their own, most people will have the first strong immediate intuition that the that the answer is ten cents. And then what they're going to do is they're going they're not going going to answer that right away in most cases. They're going to reason about it. They're going to, what they think they're doing is trying to make sure that they're right. But in fact, what reasoning is doing is mostly finding reasons for uh, for their wrong intuition. Mm-hmm. So people are going to, you know, think, well, you know, sure, you know, $1, there's this $1, there's this $1 and 10 cents. The, you know, it has to be 10 cents. It, it can all make sense. And they, they don't they don't really realize that their reasons are poor and that their uh, intuition is wrong. Um, on the other hand, if you put people in a group, uh, basically, two things can happen. Either everybody got it wrong, in which got it wrong, in which case, uh, well, you know, nothing much is going to happen. People are not going to argue because they all agree on the wrong answer, or someone got it right, and that person is, you know, always going to be able to convince everyone that this is the right answer. And as a result, um, if you put people in groups, their performance will improve dramatically, just because, um, you know, they are likely to uh, to have been confronted to someone with the right answer. And what's what's important in this case is that it it really has to be argumentation. So if you just tell people, well, look, the right answer is five cents, or if you provide them with the choice between, you know, the answer is either five cents or ten cents, people they don't change their mind. They don't say they don't just realize, oh gosh, you know, obviously I was wrong. This is five cents. You have to actually you have to talk them into accepting the five cents. Mm-hmm. And so that's a case in which reasoning does extraordinarily well what it's supposed to do. So it allows those people who have the right answer to um, find arguments to convince the others. And it allows those who had the wrong answer to accept these arguments and to see their strength. And sometimes it takes a bit of time. Sometimes it can take five, 10 minutes, but, uh, but then everybody basically, um, I mean, in, in my, kind of, I've, I've done that with a lot of people and I've had one person once who I wasn't able to convince, uh, that was not a, a very, very uh, mathematically literate person, but, Basically, as, as soon as you're able to grasp the to grasp the mathematics, which are pretty basic, 
everybody gets you know becomes convinced very quickly that um, that you know they were wrong and and the and the correct answer is something else. That's fascinating, and you know I think that you can read into not only what's been written before, but the way that you're presenting it and see it as you know people have intuitions and they have existing opinions and beliefs, and then they sort of examine those things and try to justify why they feel the way they feel. And that comes across as, well, that's just how a lot of people approach reality, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, but despite all of that, you write in your paper that you don't see reasoning as a flawed mechanism. And um, mm-hmm. So why, why is that? After everything that we've said about it, why is it still not really considered a flawed mechanism in your perspective? So it's not because um, people have been thinking about it the wrong way about it. They've been thinking about it as uh, a tool for individual cognition. And if, if that was the function of reasoning, it would be, it would be terrible. It would be like the, 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 less, you know, the least adaptive mechanism that ever you know, uh, showed its face. It's really basically it's, it's doing the exact opposite of what you'd like it to do. So, and that's why people indeed you know, have been writing about reasoning as being flawed. So if you're, if you're on your own and you want to make sure that you write about something. You want to do two things. You want to find reasons, you know, why you might why you might be wrong, and you want to make sure that the reasons for whether you're right or wrong are good, you know, sound reasons. And reasoning does the opposite of that. It only finds or mostly finds reasons for why you're right. You know, showing that that you're right uh, anyway. And it doesn't really care whether the reasons are good or not. It's sort of very superficial. It, it's very shallow. It just you know it's satisfied with uh, kind of poor reasons. And all of that looks terrible for the individual reasoner, and indeed it is, and that's why we have all of these um, um, negative outcomes that we were uh, talking about earlier. On the other hand, if you think of reasoning as something that is designed for argumentation, then all of that makes sense, because if you want to convince someone, having a confirmation bias is, uh, you know, exactly what you'd expect and what you'd want. I mean, if I want to convince you, finding arguments against my point of view is not going to be uh, tremendously helpful. And... And actually, interestingly as well, if you're in in an interactive context, so if we're you know if we're uh, exchanging arguments together, I don't really have to find extremely strong argument. I don't have to, uh, you know, to be like a lawyer who would prepare her arguments for you know for for uh, for days and days. I can just you know I give you an argument, and um, then you know if the argument is good, then you, you're going to be convinced, and that's that's fine. If it's not really good, then you're going to give me a counter-argument and I'm going to address that counter-argument and, or, you know, I'm going to try another argument. So, so these features of reasoning that makes it, that make it look um, like a really flawed mechanism, um, if you think of it as something that serves uh, individual purposes, actually, if you think of it as really something that, that is for argumentation, it all makes sense. It's, it, beca- it's becomes a, it, it becomes something that is extremely you know, well tailored to the task in a, in a way that, that, that I find quite uh, inspiring and at least, you know, sort of beautiful in the way, you know, whenever you see something that is well you know, adapted to a given task in nature, it's, uh, it's, always, uh, it's always quite, you know, nice and to, to see how, how well things work. Yeah, I had the same feeling reading your work in that, you know, um, you, people get down when they hear, when they read a lot of about confirmation bias and motivated reasoning and, um, you know, logical fallacies and all that stuff. People tend to get sort of depressed in a weird way to say, that, well, you know, if we're so flawed, what is the point? <laughs> how do we get over all these things? And and uh, from your perspective, you, you talk about how, well, the stuff, 
it's more about, um, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I'm reading it is that when we, we generate, the way we generate our arguments for things is flawed, but the way we evaluate arguments is pretty good. Um, and that's, and that's really sort of detailed well, and you actually write in the paper that um, in most discussions, I'm quoting you here, rather than, mm-hmm. look, rather than looking for flaws in our own arguments, it's easier to let other, uh, the other person find them and then only then adjust their arguments if necessary. And that just, that's basically how science works, is people <laughs> generate arguments and other people attack those arguments, and then over a long period of time, we get closer to the real truth. Is that, is that how you see it? Exactly. So, I mean, I just, I would just, you know, slightly object to the, to the characterization of the way we find arguments as flawed because it's, it's biased, mm. but, uh, but not every bias has to be a flaw. So, right. um, so for instance, you know, if you, if you're, if you're, if you have a mechanism that aims at, uh, avoiding poisonous mushrooms, you want it to be biased towards, uh, towards saying that the mushroom is poisonous rather than, you know, palatable, <laughs> uh, you know, rather than the other way around, it's better to avoid a mushroom that was fine, uh, rather than, you know, to, um, uh, to get poisoned because you thought it was, um, it was palatable. So, so it's not, I mean, so, so clearly we have these biases, you know, we have this confirmation bias, we tend to use shallow arguments, but this is all fine in, in the context of, of a discussion. Not only is it fine, but it's, it's probably even um, optimal um, in that it can create, uh, as you were kind of saying with the, with, the, with the idea that we let other people find flaws in our arguments rather than do it ourselves. I mean, it, it makes a, a nice um, division of cognitive labor. So typically if, I mean, to, for me to be able to anticipate why you might disagree with me, um, I would have to do a lot of cognitive work because, you know, you've got a lot of beliefs I don't have and it would be very hard for me to anticipate, you know, why, why you might think um, such and such. So, I mean, to give you like a very um, um, everyday life example, um, if I want to convince you to go to a, to a given restaurant, you might have very, very different reasons for not wanting to go to that restaurant. You might not, let's say it's a, you know, a Japanese restaurant. You might not like Japanese food. You might think it's too expensive. You might, maybe you've gone to a Japanese restaurant two days, two days ago. And I can't, I can't anticipate all of that. So if, if I just tell you, well, look, you know, we should go to that restaurant. It's a, it's a, it's a good restaurant. Then you might tell me, well, look, actually, you know, I, I don't really like Japanese food. In which case I could tell you, well, look, but I, they also serve, you know, Thai food or something. I don't have to anticipate every possible reason, and I can't even anticipate every possible reason you might have to uh, to disagree with me. So it's much better to just you know start with a kind of weak argument, like saying, well, you know, it's a good restaurant, rather than have to list all the potential arguments you might have for wanting to go there, mm. or try to really you know spend hours anticipating. So okay, so maybe he doesn't want to eat there because uh, uh, because you know he doesn't like Japanese, blah blah blah, and. Um, I mean, that's the way, in a way, you can really feel that in the way you're comfortable, you know, with people you know well, um, you're comfortable, you know, making suggestions without having to think too carefully about, you know, what you're, what you're saying. And if you contrast that with like, you know, someone, you know, like the first date or something, which you're going to, you're going to overthink everything because you don't really know the person, mm-hmm. but you want to really be very careful not to, not to say anything foolish. It's extremely uneconomical and, and kind of painful and effortful and not very pleasant. And when, then when you know people, you can just keep all that and you, and you say things. And if that doesn't work, you know, that's fine. Right. And you can, if I'm reading you correctly, you could see it as a very adaptive response to many different minds with many different perspectives because um, it can scale up to bigger problems. Like you, you write about, you know, we, 
abolished slavery over the course of many, many different arguments from many different perspectives being considered for a very long time. And in, you know, in our country, we're doing the same thing for, in every country, there are ideas that are being bandied about through reasonable, you know, debate. And eventually we, you know, we assume that we'll come to the better conclusion because we debate, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously the, the moral cases are always tricky because, because it's harder to tell, um, what is right or wrong. I mean, I mean, so obviously you know, things like slavery, you know, it's, it's easy for us to say, well, you know, look, that, that was wrong. Um, from, from our point of view, like if you, if you adopt some kind of like evolutionary point of view, in which case, you know, people should basically should be, you know, looking after their, their own welfare, um, uh, mostly, it's not clear that reasoning, even in groups, even in the best, you know, circumstances, uh, when people are free to argue as much as they want and, and all that, it's not clear it should lead to more moral outcomes. It should just lead to outcomes that are better for the individuals uh, who are discussing with each other, not necessarily for every, for anyone else. Um, what what is nice about the, the the history of the abolition of slavery, and mostly, but I guess, and the one I know best anyway. The history of the uh, of the abolition of the slave trade in um, in Great Britain is that arguments. I mean, we know that arguments really played a critical role in the process. So people have argued, and psychologists and, and, and others have argued that when it comes to to big moral changes um, such as such as this, it's mostly a matter of emotions and and conformity. So basically, everybody wants kind of many people change their mind, and other people will follow. Um, it's not necessarily clear why these people would change their mind in the first place, but um, people tend to say, well, you know, look, arguments don't work for this sort of things. And in fact, they do. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear in, in, in that case anyway, and I, and I believe in other cases as well, that people, you know, so like, you know, like late, um, late um, um, 18th century, early 19th century in, in Great Britain, a lot of the population and, and at least, you know, the most important members of the population in that case, the, the members of parliament were really convinced by good arguments that, you know, that it was wrong. And, and also they were convinced that it was not necessarily economically the best thing to do, but really arguments played a, a critical role in that, in that process. And so I think we still have to be hopeful and the, the, the pace of, of change I mean, I'm sure that for people living at the time, it seemed uh, tremendously, I mean, extremely slow. There, were, you know, it took it took many years, and there was the the Napoleonian uh, Napoleonic Wars that uh, that intervened that kind of uh, screwed things screwed things up for a while. But uh, I can uh, apologies for that on, on the behalf of friends, by the way. <laughs> but uh, but uh, um, you know, when you look at when we look at it now, it, it does seem seems to be pretty fast given the scale of the change. You know, we went from. Uh, from you know slavery being completely allowed in Britain um, in the late um, 18th century to to it being completely outlawed uh, a few decades later, so you know obviously from the point of view of activists nowadays you know any change is going to be uh, to appear extremely slow, but it doesn't mean that there is no change. I mean you know convincing you know millions of people is is not going to you know happen very quickly. It's not surprising, uh, but it's good to know that you know it can happen. Yeah, it gives me hope. Uh your work specifically gives me hope that those YouTube comments that we were talking about and, uh, yeah. and that um, when people clash online about all sorts of different things, that there's, that there is actually something positive happening that is invisible in the moment, but maybe over a, a long period of time, people being confronted. I mean, many of these people have never been confronted with an opposing viewpoint or a different viewpoint, maybe ever in their lives. And now 
because they got online, they're like, oh, wait, people think things that I don't think. And uh, yeah. maybe that's there's a maybe there's a positive thing happening there. You know, I think there is. I mean, the, the I, I unfortunately, I don't know that literature well enough, but there is a substantial now literature in, in political science on any kind of media studies on the effect of uh, of the Internet on and political beliefs. And it seems that contrary to a lot of uh, popular opinion, um, so not only, uh, I mean, like, for instance, you know, the American population is the best studied, but people are not actually much more polarized than uh, than they were 10 or 20 years ago. Politicians are much more polarized, uh, but people are, haven't changed all that much, uh, most people anyway. And, and also that people actually, when they go online, um, they don't only read things that are going to support their opinion. They also, um, as you were saying, they read, you know, uh, things that, you know, go the other way. And even if they only read, you know, papers that support their opinion, there'll be the comment section with uh, people from, you know, the other side commenting. And, and no, I mean, it is, it's, I mean, I would say on the whole, the, the, the question is still open as to whether the, um, the overall effect is positive or negative. Uh, but I can't, I can't help that it, it that it could be really negative on the whole. I mean, given that previous uh, improvements in communication technology have always resulted in uh, in better beliefs on the whole. I mean, it's it would be. I mean, when when printing came out, I'm sure there are people saying, "Well, look, you know, it's, it's you know." And actually, that was the case. So when it's actually a good example, when printing came out, a lot of people were worried by all the really really uh, bad publications that were that were circulated. There was a lot of astrology, a lot of you know superstition that were being printed because you know people wanted to read that. And so people are worried about printing. They say, well, look, you know, it's really getting out of hand and people are getting access to a lot of knowledge that they want to understand. And, you know, the bad things are going to spread more than the good things. And, you know, in retrospect, it all seems completely ridiculous. You know, it's like, seriously, you know, how could anyone ever question printing as a, as a way of improving knowledge? Right. And I think the same thing, I mean, I hope the same thing is going to happen with the, with the Internet. I mean, on the whole, it's going to be a, to prove to be a force for the for the for the best, especially, I mean, for us, because it does allow people to argue in a way that that printing uh, doesn't really. I mean, at least you know the interaction that you can have with the book. I mean, you can you can write a reply, but most people are never going to do that. So um, so by by enabling um, much much more argumentation, we we should predict that on the whole, the internet should really be uh, be very helpful to um, to make people change their mind and adopt better beliefs on the whole. Well, Hugo. Uh... I can't, this is a great place to stop, even though I don't want to stop because I, I love, I love, I love talking to you about this topic. And, um, I can tell you that your, your work is really going to, is really going to enhance everything that I do and how I think about things because it, 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 you gave the opportunity to answer the question of why, which is something that has been very difficult to answer. Um, and I think you've moved, I think you've moved as far as, um, in, in psychology and in, in philosophy, I think you have moved the conversation forward really well. And I think that's fantastic. And I thank you for it. Um, well, thank you very much. Thank you very much. That, that's very, uh, very, very kind of you. And it's great for us to know that we're, you know, having some kind of impact on, on, uh, on people's thoughts. So if, if someone wanted to um, keep up with your work and find you, uh, how could they do that? So um, I've got a website. You know, so if you uh, if you Google uh, um, Hugo Mercier, um, you'll you'll find that website. And there is a news page, kind of with the with the new stuff that is uh, sometimes updated. Um, I've got two small children, a lot of work, so it's not updated as much as it should. But uh, it is updated from time to time. And 
And most importantly, we're writing a book so with uh, Dan Sperber, my uh, former PhD thesis advisor and, uh, and the co-author of that, of that paper you were referring to. Uh, we're writing a book that is going to be aimed at a kind of you know, um, broader audience than, than um, standard academic writing. Uh, we, and it's going to be our first try for you know, each of us at, at you know, kind of slightly popular writing. So um, I don't know how well we'll do it, but we'll try anyway. Mm-hmm. So, um, so at some point that book will come out and, and, um, and hopefully you know, people will people who have been interested in the argumentative theory from, from the paper and the press coverage it got will, uh, will, will enjoy that. Oh, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. All right. Well, thank you so much. It was great having you on the show. Well, thank you very much, David. It was great to, uh, it was great to be on the show. I am so very proud that You Are Not So Smart is now part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. And another podcast at Boing Boing you should check out is Gweek, hosted by Mark Fraunfelder, who each week interviews friends of Boing Boing who discuss comic books, sci-fi, video games, board games, television shows, movies, tools, gadgets, apps, and other neat stuff, which is what he says at the beginning of each podcast. And it's true. And you should really check it out. He interviews some really um, interesting guests and people who um, you've always wanted to hear delve deeper into what they do. So check out Gweek over at Boing Boing Podcasts one of the mini podcasts over there that I think are fantastic and I'm proud to rub shoulders with. And now it's time for cookies. On each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I read a piece of self-delusion news or a scientific study related to self-delusion while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And you can send in your recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. If I pick and bake and eat your recipe, you get a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart or my second book, You Are Now Less Dumb. And I post the recipe and the winner and photos and everything else over at youarenotsosmart.com as well as the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page where things like cookie recipes love to flourish. And this week's winner is Jamie Lee Jonker. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Jonker? Jonker? It's spelled Jonker. Jamie Lee Jonker of New Zealand who sent in a recipe for orange coconut chocolate chip cookies. And I have one right here. And I'm going to taste it. So give me a moment. I'm going to move away from the microphone so you don't hear my smacking. And here we go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of cookie in this cookie. Mm-hmm. Dear God. Step so far away, knock something over because of the deliciousness. Paralyzed my mind and interrupted my fine motor control. Oh boy. Okay, so this cookie is very dense. Like, uh, of all the cookies we've made up until this point, there was a, sort of an airiness to all of them, a crumbliness, a crunchiness, something, but not this. No, this is just like chocolate chip triple power it's cubed yes to the cube this is a chocolate chip with a superscript three this is so much chocolate chip that i know there's orange in it and i taste it slightly at the beginning and maybe the recipe just needs to be uh, add more orange but there's so much chocolate chip that it's like there um i feel like it's doubling on itself it's fractalizing in my mouth and brain it's fantastic same pew uh, same pew that's what's happening it has destroyed my it destroyed my ability to speak Thank you so much.
Jamie uh, Lee Jonker, I can't thank you enough. Uh, it was absolutely delicious and will power my brain through reading about this interesting research. I'm reading about this research from an article with the headline, Older Adults Gauge Their Partner's Feelings Through Knowing, Not Seeing. That story is published in medicalnewstoday.com. And they're detailing research by Anja Rowers at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Germany. That research was published in the journal Psychological Science, and that journal is put out by the Association for Psychological Science. And what they've discovered is that um, as you get older, many things go into cognitive decline. Things that you're really good at right now, you're not going to be quite as good at those things later on. Sometimes the decline is gradual and tiny and uh, just a little bit less, and sometimes it's a whole lot less. So those tasks, it could be tasks like remembering or um, being able to sort different things, um, being able to keep up with more than one thing at a time. There's all sorts of things that go down as we age that get uh, the decline a little bit as we age. And what they were specifically studying in this research was being able to determine how does your partner, if you're married or you're in a long-term relationship, how does your partner feel? Like what, how can, can you, do you understand, can you empathize, can you understand the emotional state that your partner currently feels. And we already know, we scientists, psychologists, neuroscientists, they already know that as you get older, it becomes more difficult to just look at someone's face and read their emotional state. It becomes more difficult to separate out the nuances of emotion and uh, mood and all that sort of thing just from looking at a person's face. But what they found in this study is that even though that does diminish as you get older, your ability to understand and feel and sort of gauge at any given moment how your partner feels does not diminish as we age. At least it doesn't seem so by the um, findings of the study. So what they did is they had 100 couples and they divided them up into two groups. One group is ages 20 to 30 and the other group is ages 69 to 80. And they take those two groups and ask them to look at their partner's faces and then they have to uh, judge how their partner feels and then they have to later on they have them judge how their partner feels without being able to see their faces without them even being in the room without even them being even nearby and they found that although yes younger people perform better on the facial task um, and the task where you're not in this room with the person you're not looking at their face people perform equally no matter how old you are so and as they quote in the article, that means that from um, the main researcher, reading emotional expressions may become more difficult with age, but using one's knowledge about a familiar person remains a reliable strategy through adulthood. And so they go on to say that's really good news. The researcher says that's really good news because so many things go into cognitive decline. This is a really, it's really um, soothing and comforting to know that this is one of those things that we can rely on for the rest of our lives. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can go to youarenotsosmart.com right now and find links to everything that we've talked about in this podcast. Read articles about self-delusion. Learn more about uh, both of my books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb. And merchandise, including confirmation bias t-shirts. I can't stress to you enough how cool you will be if you wear one of these around and then explain what confirmation bias means please head over to boingboing.net and check out all the other great podcasts they've got going on there. Send cookie recipes and self-delusion news to David at youarenotsosmart.com and look for You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Google+, YouTube, and Pinterest and SoundCloud and Instagram. And on Twitter, look for at NotSmartBlog.